What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the One Deeper Podcast. It's been a minute. I have several episodes already recorded. I just haven't had the time to put them out there. Well, I've had the time. Priorities. Other priorities have taken over. So, this episode is with Dr. Dimitar Shitryanov. I have no idea if I have said that name correctly, and I keep saying names wrong. Anywho, my apologies. Sh- Dimitar is an assistant professor at Tilburg University School of Humanities and Digital Sciences. He teaches several courses, actually. He teaches deep learning and the software engineering elective, and I'm not sure what else. Anyway, this conversation is about industry, about AI, about language learning, all sorts of stuff. Great conversation. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learned something. And thanks again for tuning in. <laughs> We're live. Okay. Hello. How's it going? It's going okay. Yeah. A bit cold. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for uh, sitting down with me today. So, I told you the general idea of what we're talking about, right? Just like, just yes. uh, this, this is gonna be part of like a different, like a small, like a makes it like a mini series, because <laughs> so far, all the episodes that I've done are super ap- academic, for the most part, which is I enjoy, I really like. Uh, but then I was curious, like, okay. Um, what about some industry applications, right? Because I want to see how the rubber actually hits. Because it's nice to sit around talking about, you know, what is intelligence? <laughs> but like, you know, I want to see uh, what's happening out there and how these tools can be used, you know, to actually help people do things better and stuff like that. So, Do we talk about chat GPT or no? We can talk about anything you want. <laughs> I think that I'm not the person to talk about chat GPT, but... Uh, at least not the most appropriate one. No, so I spoke to Chris about it, actually. I have a whole oh, episode, nice. like an hour and a half episode of me talking to uh, Chris about ChatGPT. No, but it's just because it's everywhere now, right? Yeah, Everybody's yeah, yeah. like, oh, ChatGPT, you know? Man. I'm curious about how do you feel? Students. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? Uh, mixed feelings. Like, if you type something and it gives you some content and it's kind of great, you don't need to, to type the whole content yourself. <laughs> Which then uh, raises the question, am I going to read a lot of theses that are written by ChatGPT? Oh, I have a strong feeling you are. <laughs> I have that too. But then, uh, then that raises the question, how am I going to evaluate the students? Now, you write, uh, you have your ideas and you write them usually on your own. And sometimes there is big discrepancy between what's in your mind and what's on paper or on the computer. And ChatGPT helps about that you know um, puts your thoughts out there but then it doesn't put your content um, of course you have to revise it and you have to make sure that it it doesn't make bad mistakes it will make some mistakes but at least not the bad ones uh, but yeah at the end uh, i'm just curious how many theses written by chat gpt i'll read this semester we'll see like I I played around with it quite a bit when it came out. Uh, I I actually didn't know it came about it until until Andre told me about it, and I played around with it quite a bit. Um, I used it in a very very specific case. So I, I took an evolutionary psychology class last semester, and every step, every uh, lecture was a we had we had a paper to paper to read. Mm-hmm. So I, 
I read all the papers and then at the exam, I just showed ChatGPT all seven of those papers and I asked it to, and I just, whenever I had a question about it, I just queried ChatGPT. So, so I use it like a chat, like a search engine, basically. Here's some things that I want you to consider and then give me the stuff. But the thing mm-hmm. is, the only reason I was confident in doing that was because I had already read the papers. So I know when this guy is talking complete nonsense, which is not the case for, a lot, for, for what a lot of people are doing. They just like assume that this is intelligent and then knows what it's doing. Yeah, that's true. Like, uh, but yeah, ChatGPT can give you like this information in a concise way. Like you, you can say, please summarize this paper. If the paper is there, it will summarize. Try to it will take the data to crunch it and it will give you a summary. At the end of the day, um, I mean that's actually a very useful tool, right? Oh, because yeah, why sure. why do you have to read fifty papers when you actually have to extract some knowledge out of it? I mean, sometimes it's nice to have the knowledge uh, of uh, a lot of papers, but sometimes it's nice just to to get the the essence. So, yeah. I, I've used it for that purpose to actually get information that I don't want to, you know, to look for myself, uh, but also to compose some text. And you say, write me an abstract that, you know, describes this and this and this, and then you get something that is like this, succinct, nice, and it makes sense. Then you have to revise it, of course. I mean, ChatGPT uh, is not just the AI, right? Like, it's actually an, an amalgamation of a lot of different yeah. technologies yes so true. it's not just like like a, it's not just the algorithm that does something it's got i mean the engineering the interface the yeah the scale the all that stuff is pretty also really interesting apart from just the uh predictive like the, uh, but it, at the heart of it it's just a it's not okay just a, but it's but it's a at the heart of it it's a generative predict text prediction prediction thing right <laughs> It doesn't actually know what they're doing. It's just predicting the next word based on the previous word and the history and yeah. all that stuff. I think that if you type some weird query, it will say, I'm just a, a, mm-hmm. a large language model. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I cannot. There's like, a, I, so it's probably like, a, if something comes up, then give it like, that you can't handle, give it this response. Be like, yeah. Okay. yeah. I cool. think that I asked about, what can you tell uh, about Dimitar Steryonov? That's me. Yeah. And then uh, Chad GPT said, I uh, cannot look into personal information. Please do it yourself, basically. <laughs> Go to Google Scholar. But or some whatever. people, some people it can. Yeah. yeah, but I think that the information is up till 2000. And so the, the information that has been collected to be used for training is until 2021, I think, or 2022. Um, so it has crawled all the websites that are there. I think that I had a website that, then, but for some reason it doesn't. It so didn't crawl me. Well, like it crawled the entire internet. I have it's no idea exactly how right? much uh, that it it, it it has crawled. But it's yeah. a, it's a, okay as as far as the uh, application goes. It's pretty pretty nice. It's a cool application. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that the first impressive thing was uh, Dali, and then you have now ChatGPT. I'm just curious what will be the next thing. Kind of looking towards the quantum side of things. Um, I guess that that we will see something cool there. Uh, but to be honest, for me, it's also an un- unknown. Yeah. Like to look into the future. Um, I, I think maybe movies, like video, like uh, like custom videos. Because like I I I I talked to Chris about it. It's like instead of so right now the Netflix recommendation engine is like a low low budget version of this, right? Like 
It's, yeah. like a, it's like a filtering of it's a collaborative filtering of things that you want to see based on what other people have liked that you've mm-hmm. seen. Um, but then in the future, maybe like you know, hundred years from now, Netflix is like you log into Netflix and you just say, "I want to watch a TV show that's like this," and so they and it like generates like goes off generates auto generates like ten seasons. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah. Then the question is, who is the creator, right? Yeah. Is it you who give the uh, the instructions what you want to watch or what you want to present to somebody or is it Netflix that has the model and I think that there has been also the question with uh, this competition the art competition where it was won yeah. by uh, image generated by AI yeah, it's a great looking image I really like that yeah, I mean, yeah I really the, like the image is nice yes uh, but yeah these are all kind of uh, ethical questions that, uh, I mean we can dwell but on but like what, wouldn't you want like okay think about this right like, like Breaking Bad or uh, Lord of the Rings right Mm-hmm. Oh, like I can watch Lord of the Rings I have watched Lord of the Rings over and over again it never gets a lot it's, it's amazing those three movies are awesome yeah. The Hobbit's also really good like let's say lots of movies are made every year right wouldn't mm-hmm. you want to be able to repeatedly make Lord of the Rings level movies over and over again uh, yes and no like as a as a human being I like interesting content that is if I can watch Lord of the Rings or Star Trek all over and over again and something new, of course, uh, in those lines or Harry Potter or The Matrix or, you know, all these nice movies that you kind of like, um, then at some point, perhaps the, the ideas that are related to these movies will be um, exhausted and then I may get bored. So... I would like to see new content, new content that is more um, create, creatively created, basically. Because if you think about it, it's also happening now with movies. They do repeat similar stories, similar characters, similar, similar ideas. Um, and if that continues to happen, then I'll lose interest in, in movies. I, you know, but I, one of the things about things like movies and books and stories is like mm-hmm. there are some stories that are so compelling that you can actually say it over and over again in different ways, right? Like, yeah, that's the, true. Like the Lord of the Rings story, the core of Lord of the Rings. Like, I've, I've read the books and I've like watched the movies. So I'm a huge fan, right? But the uh, not a huge fan compared to like Lord of the Rings nerds. If you're out there, because you know, like I don't, I don't speak the language. I don't speak el- the Elven language, and I don't, like, I can't read the thing. That's a whole different level. But um, they're like sort of these old mythological sort of stories right then mm-hmm. and then they get recast in different ways and they do, do different things like the marvel superheroes like all these stories are they have a lot of common threads but they get if the story is rich the 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 the, the, the archetype is rich enough mm-hmm. i think like this is like described by uh um like the the hero with a thousand faces or something uh john john campbell Josh Campbell? Who, who is this guy? Anyway, it's about mm-hmm. like these really uh, he- hero with a thousand faces. Well, uh, Josh, Joseph Campbell. Basically, it's like these really old stories that hit us so deep and that, that, is, that they've been told over and over again for thousands of years and it's the same story, right? Like, sort of, uh, like Iron Man. If you have watched, have you watched uh, the Endgame? Uh, I don't know. I watched Iron Man the first one and I liked it. 
and then the second one was meh and then the third one and then the, all the Marvel and then I was like I'm tired of that I'm actually a, I actually like the Marvel movies like like some, the, I the ones I've seen especially the Iron Man and the Avengers ones I'm a big mm-hmm. fan but like um, you know their the general story is like the same right it's like it's like you have these group of people who are like misfits they come mm-hmm. together they have their, they have this inner ability that that's like a story everyone wants to believe right yeah and i agree like the what was it the one with star lord uh oh, yeah, Guardians Guardians of the Galaxy. Galaxy. Yeah, yeah. i love the first movie amazing right? i watched so it good. so many times and, and the soundtrack and this was like a the soundtracks awesome. are fantastic everything yeah. was great about that movie yeah exactly and then i watched the second one and i was like okay yeah it's a bit lame now the way that it so until at some point it was interesting then the way that it kind of twisted the idea i was like eh, yeah no um but yeah all, all these ideas they are indeed uh, overlapping I, have guess, you, I mean have you okay you've seen the dark knight series the dark knight uh, i've seen some of them i didn't watch what was it uh batman versus superman or is no, 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 it no no i'm talking not, about i'm talking about batman begins the the, the, the dark Chris, knight christopher nolan, christopher nolan yeah yeah I, I watched this, yes. Those three yeah. are... Gr- yeah, like, yeah. Th- these, are, these are good movies. Uh, like, um, and like, fundamentally, like, Batman is Jesus. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like, in a, in a, like, in a really, like, a, at, at, a, at, a, at a core level. Okay. So, but my point is, mm-hmm. if uh, something like AI, an AI tool, like, let's say, Netflix AI in mm-hmm. the future, like, can learn this trope, it could, in theory, generate endlessly interesting things that we could just watch over and over again yeah probably but it will have a limit what do you mean Uh, why would it have a limit because uh, okay if we talk about ai you take data you process it somehow and you extract knowledge from this data and then you build something new based on this knowledge right think about the fact that all new knowledge then is ai generated then you're going to actually have a saturation point where you not longer have the ability to go outside of this knowledge because you're just repeating over and over again on top of the same thing. So can AI, so AI, AI are you saying the way it's at least right, at least right now, mm-hmm. is not capable of generating its own new knowledge? Well, all the knowledge is based on the data that we feed it and the rules that we built for whatever you know system we have there that are based on rules as well. But... Um, basically at some point it will either learn everything and try to expand outside of this everything but it will still have limits in my opinion of course because it will still be based on something that is historically uh, limited right and it will generate new data which will be based on the previous data it can create some mixtures of different datas to actually have new knowledge but then it will be again limited to mixing all these things if it does not derive new knowledge that is validated by somebody or doesn't have a human mind to create new ideas that are outside of the the ai brain perhaps and that's what i think at some point it will just stagnate it's the same thing with um so if you if you think about it train uh, train a model uh, a neural network like in the the simplest case take some data Let's say uh, parallel data for machine translation. Train a model on this data, translate with this data, uh, th- translate with this model the same data, take this output, you know, uh, train another model, do the same over and over again, and at some point what you're going to see is that 
the, the complexity of the output is becoming less and less complex, right? And then it just focuses uh, on the, the things that it knows or can learn best. So it abstracts away some things uh, and keeps them more prob probabilistically uh, high-valued uh, sentences, words, and so on. And that's that. That's what happens. So if we say, okay, let's let's have now this data and that data and that data, and at some point ask AI to generate new data, then to still generate data based on the previous experiences. So how do we? I mean, this is, this is a bad question because <laughs> that's a tough one. But like, how do we generate? I mean, you know, the saying like there's no there's no such thing as new ideas. It's just like yeah, it's like. Everything is a, it's a, it's a combination of things that we know and like things we've seen. But like, I mean, sometimes it's like, no, makes no sense. Like, you know, general relativity is like it's a completely yeah. different thing. I'm not a, I think that I, I don't have the knowledge to, 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 to think about the brain so well uh, to actually tell you how we generate ideas. Yeah, 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 I think yeah. that what happens is that AI neural networks are much more structured than the brain. And the connections that we make sometimes are so weird that even we can't understand it. Like you dream something and then you're like, what the hell? Yeah, like, okay, I man, like last night I had, a, last night before I had a crazy dream. Like, <laughs> it was so absurd. Um, I was like, I don't know, I was on this, I was on a truck and this guy was driving, right? Like he was like, it was like this, it's, it was pitch, pitch black, right? And I, and I couldn't, and I had no idea how this guy knew where he was going. It was completely dark. And then all of a sudden, like it rises over this hill, and then I'm like floating through clouds in this car, and there's like multiple levels of like massive islands floating in space. And then you wake up in the morning, you're like, "Well, that was fun." But you know, anyway, that's like, I don't know what that's a random story. Yes, yes. But the point I'm trying to get to is, but to to be honest, generating. with 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 uh, generating new content and being creative, I think that we are we are looking things in a very um, one-sided way. We talk either about AI or about human creativity, right? Uh, did you see the movie Moonfall? Moonfall, With, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I tried to watch it. Yeah. I, 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 I gave it a good shot. I was like, I'm going to try and watch this, but like, I couldn't yeah. get past all the, like, so many holes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the, the whole point there uh, was that AI that was enslaved turned towards the, the organic human ancestors, right? That, that. Sorry, spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler. <laughs> um, but, uh, and that has been in so many other movies, right? That yeah. AI turns towards the, the human because, uh, you know, humans have enslaved AI. But I think that what we need to think about is um, how do we actually work together with AI? And I think ChatGPT is, is a good example, right? If you, if you don't trust only the, the, the model, but you actually collaborate, work together with the model, then there you have a nice um, environment for creativity. You can be more creative. You can build new images with Dali or whatever, just based on your ideas. And and you can still add your input there, like uh, being on a track, uh, flying through the clouds. You can ask the, the model to generate this thing, but then you can also add your input and in this way you I mean, that's how that content. guy made the, that's how what that's how that guy made the photo that make the image that one uh, mm -hmm. thing he's like i actually worked really hard like i had to <laughs> like i had to really iteratively improve this my improve my query over and over and over again mm -hmm. until i can get what i wanted 
Yeah, so with in terms of AI and creativity and what comes next, I think that we should work together. Um, AI is good in some things, humans are good in other things. To be honest, we, we often get this question, um, kind of a negative remark always actually, by industry. When we, not industry in general, but like uh, translation industry, when we build machine translation systems, uh, we always get this remark of, yeah, but what do you want uh, MT to replace the human translator? And then uh, we have showed many times how bad actually MT is in comparison to human translators. Um, or at least not as good as a human translator. So um, Google Translate isn't that good? I mean, it seems pretty good. They, they had, so in 2000, what was it? Uh, 16 or 17, there were two papers, one from Google, one from Microsoft, that claimed that they have reached human parity. So both of them, you know, we achieved human parity and then we achieved superhuman performance, I don't know what. Um, and at the end, some researchers took, uh, so people from uh, Groningen now um, took uh, these papers, their experiments, their results, and then compared them or gave them to, to human uh, translators to, to check this. And, well, the professionals say, well, that's not as good as what we produce. And these were blind tests and so on and so on. So it's not as good as human uh, translation. Now, in some cases, of course, that's going to be the case like if you translate something that is very standard like um, a user manual that the AI probably has seen all these sentences before then of course you're going to get a nice translation but imagine that you're translating the next uh, Harry Potter book or the next uh, Lord of the Rings book or whatever or the subtitles for the movie then perhaps the AI will not catch all the essence prosody. Mm. Um, uh, like skill richness. Yeah, language uh, is weird. Yeah, language is weird. <laughs> language yes. is super weird. Um, so, and then that's why I think that a collaboration, I will not go to say symbiosis because that's too yeah, strong, I think. Speak into the thing. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, uh, I was uh, <laughs> yeah. drifting towards the window. But no, I, I, I said that I will not say a symbiosis between AI and, and the human, but uh, um, like maybe a collaboration uh, between human and AI. I mean, that's, yeah, like, like the, I think, the, I mean, that's probably where it starts, right? The first step of like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't actually think about sort of like a general AGI. They just, they're like, it's like, I mean, some people do, some people actually like actively look into it. I guess mm -hmm. OpenAI is supposed to be doing that, but I don't know how much that's true. But um, they're not like, like the, uh, it's, I mean, the, it's usefulness is obviously, uh, apparent. Okay, Not but I wanted to ask you. Yeah, I, I right. wanted to ask you. Like, in so when I get the like, so I speak. I spoken to the not lot, not enough people, but like some pe people, right? And some problems that, that they want to sort of solve mm -hmm. industrially. And it, I'm amazed at how many of them can be solved by a linear regression, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, you know, if you want to pay me to do, pay me to hire you to do, hire me to do your AI stuff, and I can solve mm -hmm. your problem with a linear model i'm gonna do that <laughs> but so what's like uh what's your experience been like in terms of the tools that actually because there's a lot of hype yeah a lot of hype a lot of you know neural networks are everyone wants to throw a new neural network at their problems yeah doesn't, doesn't that's seem, true doesn't, doesn't seem necessary no um not always um i was thinking 
I had a similar situation with uh, a student or a couple of students actually that they were like, yeah, we have this uh, data and we want to actually have a, a, a AI model to actually predict all this data or to do some inference uh, on on that data. And I was like, but you have like very little little data and very easy to model data. Why do you need AI just to to say I trained a neural network? I mean, you can do your job with another with another model. But the thing is that we are in this era now that everything is around AI. And people, especially in, in kind of in industry, if you present a, uh, a solution that is not state of the art uh, in terms of the, the models and the tools that are used, then people are a bit like, hmm, skeptical, you know. But there are models and tools that are much better than what we have now with AI. I, uh, I worked... Um, when was it 2017? Um, I think we, we we worked on a, uh, a reordering system. So where you take uh, like um, sentences in, in German and Japanese, I think, and then you try to reorder them so that uh, they they match the English site or the other way around. Don't remember exactly what it was. What it was. And then we had this um, tool, which was a parser written in C. Not C++, C, um, and which actually made it very difficult to parallelize, but it was super fast and super good. And then you take, uh, at that time it was Stanford uh, Neural Parser, and it was not as good, right? Uh, it was also slow, and it would require a GPU, and I don't know what. Well, this thing just ran out of the box very quickly. Of course, it was not parallelizable again. And so in this situation, I, I was happy that such a tool existed that is not neural-based, and that we could use it and just plug it into our system, get good results quickly enough, and so on. So in this situation, yeah, I would not go for uh, for AI. And if we wouldn't explore different options, then it would be like, oh, the state of the art, according to this in these papers, are these tools, right? Neural-based approaches. And we would have probably used them, but we looked into other options. Um, there are, of course, counterexamples. Uh, we worked on a paper, and sorry that I'm going into uh, no, no, the academic it's side. It's okay. Take it, take it. Uh, you go wherever you want to go. But uh, I'll, I'll kind of... Uh, so the, the work... Um, there was a work by Google, uh, was it last year or two years ago, um, on neutralizing or, or making uh, gender-neutral um, language model or translation system, where you input something which has gender markers, centers uh, which has gender markers, and then it converts it into they, them, uh, etc. So that it can be used to, it can be used to, um, you know, um, hide the gender when, you know, gender can be taken um, into account in some of these CV applications, and etc., which is not nice, so... Then they worked on this. We also worked, well, we actually, my colleague uh, Eva van Masachova worked on that. And then she developed this uh, rule-based system. And the rule-based system was very good. Uh, it actually beat Google's uh, system. And it was just a bunch of rules um, that was super fast. And you didn't need to, to use a GPU. You didn't use, need to, to train on a lot of data. You just had rules. Of course, it took a lot of time, a lot of human hours to, to develop the system. And then we we trained our uh, sorry we we did um, the the system and we passed all the data 
and we got output. I think we, we took like 2 million sentences and we parse them with a rule-based system and we get, let's say, accuracy of 98%. And then we use this data and we train a neural model and we get accuracy of 99%. So in this situation, it was beneficial to actually have a neural model. And we beat Google. Well, uh, ever beat Google. Uh, I helped only with, uh, you know, coding some stuff. Um, and basically, yeah, in this situation, it was better to actually have a neural model because it somehow generalized better, extract more details, um, details that were not covered by the rules, I guess. So that was interesting. Um, in, yeah, we started from in which situations AI would, or, or deep learning would not be used uh, or useful. Um, but in industry, people do care about uh, innovation but not always they have innovation. Um, I worked on a project recently on quality estimation for machine translation, um, which I did now, so 2000, what was it, 22 last year? And I also worked on something similar in 2018, right? So n not all industries on the same level with technology and some for some industry it takes a bit more time to adopt certain things so they stick uh, to old technology and i'll give you an example with uh, uh, microsoft back then when we worked on on this uh, tool they had um, statistical machine translation systems which were not the state of the art and uh, they these were used to translate Microsoft Word, uh, Office generally, uh, menus and etc. And they had um, fine-tuned and, and kind of updated the, their systems, made them very good. So they, they were awesome systems. And they would still achieve like some uh, blue scores of around 40, 50. And so what they asked us to do um, first was to, to do uh, an automatic post-editing system on top. So the automatic post-editing system will take the output of the statistical machine translation system and kind of try to fix errors. There are a lot of approaches, rule-based, statistical, and then we implemented a neural approach. And we got improvements, like crazy improvements, of uh, 20 blue scores above uh, what they they gave us. What is look, I have a very vague idea of what the blue score represents. Um, so it is a way or a measurement uh, of how um, how close one translation is to a reference translation. It checks the overlaps between the engrams, um, between the uh, the translated output or the, the tra translation output and the reference. And then the more overlaps you have, the, the better the score. Uh, that's generally what it is. Um, I think it's like a... So higher the Precision number, the, is the higher the number is better? Yeah, the higher number, the better, yes. And, I mean, it doesn't matter if it was, it was blue or, or some other metric. The thing is that we got quite some nice improvements. And it was good for them because they used old technology that they didn't have to to, to throw away and use something else. Um, and then we just added uh, extra an extra layer on top of that, which you can imagine with an API, you can just take the output from one, send it to, to the server that runs the API system, and then get output, and you're done, basically. Of course, then you have to post-date it, or at least verify it by a human translator, but at least a lot of the job is done. However, 
the other interesting thing was that we also tried to to train neural machine translation systems for for their use case with their data and we got initially from the get-go higher results than their statistical machine translation systems when we applied the automatic post editing well we didn't get the improvements that we wanted to get that we got with the smd so basically what we saw there is that if you add neuro after neuro then you don't get this improvement that if you mix two different technologies so that's another thing that when industry has to think about switching to a different technology they have to take into account do you need to actually throw away all, all your systems uh, and build new ones on top uh, new ones replacing these old systems just to be state-of-the-art do you need to actually mix the two technologies together um, or do you want to still stick to, to the old stuff that you have is is a system that's based on a neural network demanding much much more different hardware compared to like a different like if the core is a different machine but okay so a couple of questions is it is the general approach to to train the model somewhere else and then put the model into production some in a different thing because like you don't need the you don't necessarily need the same infrastructure to do the training versus mm. the prediction, do you? Yeah, you, you don't. I mean, especially at training time, you you feed a lot of data into the model. You try to do it as fast as possible um, so that you can actually see the output, see the evaluation of this output, and then probably retrain and, and so on. So you need a lot of power to do that, and you need a lot of uh, GPU or TPU or MPU or whatever else you have there. Um, um, so you need quite some uh, strong neuro architecture, neuro uh, hardware. Um, when it comes to interface uh, to inference, depending on the situation, you may need just a CPU. You can, after training the model, you can decide to quantize your model, just cut basically reduce the, the complexity of your model and fit it into a CPU. There are also like portable neural computing device that also can host um, some model for in inference. So it's not for training there, just for inference. So you, you do need, I mean, you can use the same uh, hardware, but you can also use different hardwares. And there is no loss of, of anything, basically, um, with uh, using a CPU for inference. Some time, of course, but, but Do you think it's easier to go from being a software engineer to learn AI or other way around? A good one. Um, I think it's because, like, I think it's easier to yeah. Sorry, no, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I I think it's easier to be to to first learn software engineering and then from there build towards AI. Um, at least if you go into the details of of uh, software engineering, um, because then you are going to get ideas about how machines work. Um, how you can combine different things together to make something work, um, how you can solve different problems. And then this will link, these ideas will link with uh, what machine learning and, and deep learning and AI are. I think that's... So how, do, how is a team like generally structured right, in an industry? Because like, right now, I would, what I feel like is software engineers, at least in the current iteration, current generation of software engineers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I just worked with a few of them over the summer. I don't know, I can't generalize. But like, so one of the things that they were 
in they one of the comments that i got was that um i had this uh interesting combination of good statistical knowledge as well as the ability to, r- to write code mm-hmm. whereas they were sort of so they were working for a statistical statistical a statistical product company but they didn't they was they were just as far as they were concerned that was just a black box they were responsible for building building out the infrastructure and the software and like mm-hmm. the, as far as they're concerned they're just going to call they're going to call the api get the get the output build the thing and they're good yeah, i think that that's what you did for your uh, yeah, project that's, last year that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, i literally replicated that uh, environment yeah. <laughs> um i i think that also there are nowadays a lot of people are focusing on learning AI and deep learning and data science and data analytics and etc. And then they are losing a bit of the, the the ideas behind software engineering, which is not a problem for the moment because still we can combine somehow different expertise from uh, different people. Uh, but if that continues, if that trend continues, I guess that at some point we need AI to do the software engineering. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but. So when I used to work in industry uh, or work with industry, I would see different teams. So I worked in a startup where the team was, you know, ninjas. Everybody <laughs> does everything. Um, so we actually had uh, um, two or three Q uh, quality QAs, quality assurance people. Um, one site reliability engineer, um, two people that would develop the the. Uh, the system, the, the backend, I was uh, kind of a, a research engineer thing, doing everything, I was actually doing yeah. everything, except for the testing. Um, and then we would have like a manager and then another manager and a PI and I don't know what, and a lot of like people that actually will communicate with clients. So you can imagine a team of five people or 10 people that will do the technical stuff and a, and a team of 20 people doing all the PR and PI and I don't know what other management management things. Um, but that's how it works, I guess, in a startup company. Then when I worked with uh, with eBay at some point, it was, they, they were actually a very nice team. So I was working with the NLP team there, with the machine translation team. Um, and they were a very good team. I enjoyed how they actually were, were, were work, working together. And there were a lot of uh, research engineers um, there were people that actually would focus on the software engineering side, and I worked directly with them, uh, and it was a pain, to be honest. <laughs> because uh, if, if they listen, uh, nothing bad. <laughs> so, uh, but it was really difficult for a researcher because I was uh, working in academia at the time. It was really difficult for me to follow their standards. It was all about documentation. It was all about... Uh, uh, GitHub. It was all about uh, Trello. It was about all about meeting deadlines and, and and writing reports and and user requirements, the technical requirements, and this and that. And I was like, dude, when am I going to train my model and you know uh, see what uh, uh, what happens with with the expected results that you you have for us? And so basically, there are quite some difference between this. Now uh, we have this big project where we involve industry and we have. A bunch of researchers, well, a lot of researchers, and we have um, some people from industry. And industry is really like following their protocols. One, two, three, four, everything is there, and they're waiting for the researchers to actually give them the, the components. 
we, the researchers on the other hand, we take our time. We have to analyze things. We have to see what are the best options. And that creates a bit of a um, discrepancy in the way that such systems are built, right? Um, on the other hand, you have industry that doesn't care so much about in, uh, research and they just take whatever is available there, uh, best practices that are described somewhere. And it's very, they have a very quick return uh, on investment, let's say, uh, because you just integrate things that are there and then uh, they work because somebody has showed that that work and you don't care about analyzing and improving and, and digging into better uh, methods, which is actually why some, some uh, industry starts from somewhere quite quickly and then builds on top. Um, and of course, some systems like this actually fail um, exactly because of these this reasons that there is not enough research uh, gone through, um, even though they have an awesome idea. And I can give you an example with a company in 2000 and what was it, 18, 19, at some point, uh, they had this idea of translation system that is very personalizable and whatever you type uh, to correct the, the output from the machine translation system, it uh, teaches the the, uh, the MT behind, the AI behind, right? So it was like an example of a collaboration between human and AI where the, the AI will get better with the human input and so on and so on. And then it disappeared just because people didn't use it, just because it was not designed with the vision of what people actually need. It was there was not so much research gone into the UX or in the co-creation uh, that actually needs to happen. And it disappeared. And the people were actually quite smart and quite good researchers. I think the one was from Oxford actually that did the uh, or Cambridge, one of these big top universities. And yeah, it disappeared. Um Although the idea, in my opinion, was quite good. So it's, you know, research in, in, in academia, they don't go hand in hand, but, uh, sorry, industry and academia, they don't go hand in hand often. But I think we should try to devise a better strategy to, to, to do that. And sometimes, yeah, we take our time to write our papers because that's our currency. We, we can't uh, not publish. Right? That's not uh, allowed for us. If you want to progress, you need to publish papers in journals, conferences, and be there, right? You have to be present. Um, but for industry, that's not so important. So if you spend one or two months writing a paper, then you can actually spend them in writing code, testing this code, integrating this code, and so on, or mm. devising some new methodology. But do you think, okay, so yeah. what, I mean, that could be both ways, right? Do you think... Maybe ac maybe academia. Sh so this. Do you think? Okay, what I'm thinking about is like this current the currency of academia, like you said, is publications, right? The writing papers, and it seems to apply to pretty much every discipline in discipline in science, right? Do you think maybe it needs to be a bit more adaptable, like depending on depending on what the field is, like. Okay, so for example, if you're doing biology research and you're know, mm. doing experiments in the lab, then yeah, maybe you, you you want peer review to be super strict and you want someone to go in and like make sure like the animals are being treated properly and like the samples are being collected properly, all this stuff. Maybe if you're writing, but maybe in a different field, like let's say AI, for example, maybe the papers can just be like, you know, interactive Jupyter notebooks and like you know like uh, uh, the, the 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 peer review is maybe not peer review and it's just like a one 
editor in you know, one journal he goes in runs the code sees if it works tests a bunch of benchmarks and like uh, maybe a more iterative like yeah maybe so uh, as i understand about like writing papers it is a iterative process so you write a paper you you write a paper you give it to the publication they give you feedback you improve it give it back but that process is not very quick it takes a while right no nope. um you're right it, it takes quite some time especially if you if you want to publish into a journal um and that's why in ai basically uh computer science not ai in computer science let's say we do publish a lot in conferences in workshops where the turnaround is really like very quick especially in workshops uh, for workshops very often you don't even need uh, to have full peer review uh, or a full paper you just you just submit an abstract for example and then you present a poster and then that's your idea and that's uh, out there and people can see it and use it um in other disciplines as you said in fields where you have animals or you do like this um slower research where you have to investigate a lot of uh let's say drugs and what what is the impact on a lot of people on a big group and then it takes time then of course there you can't do this quick publications right and then you have to present uh into some more um in in, in some venues with more robust peer review right so there are there are different venues that you can actually publish and then in our field you publish often in conferences and in workshops in linguistics for example so not in, in computer science but let's say in computational linguistics or in linguistics it's more on journals and sometimes when we have this crossover between computational linguistics and computer science then sometimes people are like hey but uh, you haven't published enough in journals which in our field is not necessary um and i can give you another example also uh i worked on a paper on the environmental impact of uh of machine translation or neuro machine translation in 2019 it has been published i think march 2023 damn yeah so that's a long time and it's it's a it's actually for a chapter for a book so it's part of a book and that's why it took so so long right, right. but uh you know at that it it was on archive after that of course we put it after we submitted it to an archive once it was accepted so um people can find it but again the whole review took a long a long time you know uh, there's one guy i can't remember i think he was in, i we read one of his papers in computer vision when i took the class last semester apparently this guy publishes one paper every three, every 3 three, three or 4 years but then that paper is like re- it's really good so there is that approach like if you can do it if you if you have the like mm-hmm. the i guess the general approach is publish a lot most papers will suck some papers will be great yeah to so maximize the probability likelihood you know that the thing is that uh somehow we're always talking about academia and yeah no uh, it's fine it's fine <laughs> but uh, anyway the the thing is that you, you as a researcher as an academic you need to 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 publish not so much to actually um have papers but to to put your ideas out there ai computer science moves so quickly that if your ideas are not there somebody will, will do it for you and then okay you can say let's collaborate but then of course people have already built their strategy and their plans and it's difficult right so you you need to to show what you think what you want to do and so on so that actually you can progress i mean the publication is basically just a metric of sort of you coming up with ideas that are actually 
sort of good <laughs> you know yeah yeah of course right and it's like it's got to be um, it's got to be sort of like yeah you know, people have looked at it and be like yeah that's a, that's interesting and then interesting enough to put it in a publication so yeah but then there is also another thing like okay you have a nice idea you write a paper and the paper sucks <laughs> because you didn't <laughs> write it well or because you didn't sleep yeah, enough yeah. or just because it was too short of a time that you, you invested and then of course it's rejected just because of the the language um, or the structure or whatever and then your idea is not there so that's was, another thing i was actually uh, reading about peer review uh, a couple of days ago i was just looking at the wikipedia article wikipedia is amazing <laughs> like uh, it's got problems but like goddamn anyway so one of the things was i was looking at the controversies section about peer review and what the problems mm-hmm. are so, so one of the interesting problems is like if the people who are reading your paper have done very like out of the box innovative things they are more likely to accept your paper if it's un- if it's not conventional if it's different mm-hmm. but if they are more very if they pay if their own papers are very con- conservative then they are less likely to be receptive of like strange and random ideas mm-hmm. which is not great because mm-hmm. you know the thing with papers and publications and the peer review in general there is a problem right like you give your paper you submit your paper and you expect that somebody or two three reviewers are going to have similar knowledge about your topic as you so that they know what you're writing about they have the the sufficient background that they're going to assess your paper properly or your work properly they're going to actually investigate whether you have done the proper research by looking to the papers that you have cited and so on which which doesn't happen always right um actually rarely basically <laughs> people tick all the boxes but at the end of the day um and at the end of the day your paper is going to be accepted uh, or not and if it is accepted then you're going to publish it you're going to have it out there and then other people will find it right but the thing is that we are so many people that are working on similar topics nowadays that at some point somebody will like or not like your paper and then you see tendencies you see trends that some papers are actually cited because they are good and because they have uh impact others are not and that is what actually the the filter will be later on um and and actually some of the papers may even not be correct even though they have been reviewed um often it happens the case or sometimes it happens the case that some people can retract their paper because they made a mistake somewhere or not submit a paper because they have figured out that there is an error um but at the end of the day what will happen is that impactful papers or important papers important works they are going to be cited they're going to get more citations and more visibility and this this is the the future at the end of the day they're going to be also validated or verified through different other research and then this will be the acknowledgement for their importance so what do so if you want to go from academia to industry what kind of things do they look when they like so if you spent five years in in academia and you want to go work for facebook or microsoft or whatever what do they look for like uh, a publication history how do they measure how do they measure your it depends it depends on the position that you're applying i uh i was contacted by amazon in 2019 or 20 i think uh after i attended the acl and then somebody you know like hey we have a position would you like to and i was like just send me whatever information we'll see and of course the company like amazon is not just you know a 
the company where you have to submit your CV only and that's it. You have to do a lot of stuff. And so I was then contacted by, by a recruiter that was like, okay, uh, or, or HR, I don't know how it's called. Here are the, the, the things that you are going to, to need to prepare for the interview. And you're going to have an initial talk with this guy at that time, uh, which would be like an introductory talk. And I was like, okay, introductory. I, I, I didn't prepare anything. I had my own job and tasks at the time. I didn't, um, um, I didn't prepare. And at some point he was like, okay, technical stuff. What is a transformer? What is this? What is that? How do you train this? How do you? And I was like, dude, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know, but I have to, you know, to read stuff, to, 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 to put my thoughts together and to prepare for an interview, which I was not. Um, so they do for, for such a position, they do look into the details of the tech or, or in the technical knowledge that you have and the expertise that you have. Uh, I applied for a, what was it, LinkedIn at some point when I was after my PhD. So that was 2000 and what was it, uh, 15, I think. Um, and there it was a, like a coding interview and everything. So you had to do a lot of things. It was more on the software engineering than on the research uh, engineering things. Then um, I was also contacted by another company again to, uh, to apply for uh, a position there. Um, it was a a Portuguese company um, that deals with quality estimation of machine translation. And then they actually asked me to implement something that uh, like that I give, gave you last year, actually uh, uh, last semester, to, to implement like a whole uh, distributed architecture for machine translation that you can upload data and this will be trained. And I was like, to be honest, I have so much other work that I didn't have the time to, to look into that at all. And I didn't want also to, that, to do that because then you have to provide your code to, uh, to the company, which in my opinion was not uh, very fair. Um, but anyway, and um, yeah, the, there are different ideas and different expertises that, that people are looking for um, in which uh, um, in Zurich there was this uh, uh, WIPO, uh, the World Intellectual Property Organization. Uh, is it in Zurich or Geneva? In, it's in Switzerland. They also uh, wanted to work, th they wanted me to work with them at some point. And what they did is like, okay, let's have a talk, like you and I, we have a talk now. And then can you do this uh, task? Yes, done. That's it. And so. There are different ways of, of interviewing, different ways of, of actually um, assessing your, your knowledge. Um, oh, an interesting interview was also with Accenture. I also applied there for a data anal analyst at some point. And uh, it was, I think I had four interviews there where I had to analyze different problems, write code, um, talk about ideas, talk about problem solving, and et cetera. And it was like a four stage interview that I had to go through. Um, so it depends on, on what you are applying for. Um, yeah, like I had a, my internship over the summer. Last summer was a software engineering internship. And I had three, there were three stages. The first one was just like talking to the, you know, four, four I don't know. Just for like a summer internship, I was like, Jesus, man. And, but <laughs> but uh, the first was like talking to the HR person. Then it was talking to a technical engineer and 
doing a programming problem. It was, but the whole, the, the, it was like, I'm going to watch you code. So she was on, uh, watching my monitor, watching my screen. And she was like, I want you to tell me everything you're thinking. Right. Yeah. Like, like how, like, what is your, like, she's like, she said, look, I'm, I'm not interested in, in you solving this problem right now. What I'm more interested in is understanding how you think about something like this. And I was like, oh, that's okay. And she's like, she's like, okay, so what do you, so what, what do you first think? So I was like, okay, da, da, and I was like, actually, I'm gonna. Just, I said, look, maybe I can just make it completely abstract, turn into turn 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 it into a mathematical a mathematical equation, and just solve the equation to get the answer instead of like doing it program programmatically and like you know, moving mm-hmm. things around. And just by that approach, I got like nine out of the ten test cases right. So I was like, cool, right? She was like, that's pretty nice. Like the, 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 she's like, I didn't think of it. I didn't think of that. She's like. That's uh, interesting way to think about it. So that worked out. So it really depends. And then yeah. I applied to I applied to another company called uh, Data Bricks or something. Um, and it was like, uh, here's this. Uh, you you have ninety ninety minutes solve this program problem solve these programming problems, right? I don't know what it is. Like I just in those situations, I I don't know like what happens to me. Like I'm not a sh- like I'm not look I'm not a, I'm not an amazing engine software engineer. Or like software, I don't do software engineering, right? But I'm not a bad programmer either. Like, <laughs> like I can write code, and I can do stuff. But for some reason, those kind of problems, like I just can't. Like I, free, it gets me really anxious, and I can't do it. Mm-hmm. But maybe I'm. Some, but but then I also realized those kind of companies are like looking for a very very specific skill set, and we are not training software engineers here. Like no software engineers, like say at Eindhoven, they spend all day every day writing code. They don't. They don't. They're not looking learning about neurobiology. They're not learning about uh, you know transformers and stuff like that. Yeah, but of course, again, you have d- different requirements for different positions, and you have a lot of different positions within a company. Even even if the company is working on software engineering, you have testers, you have developers, you have designers, right? And these are people with different ideas and different backgrounds. And of course, you have also. Probably nowadays you have some data analysts and you have some AI, how do you say, experts that, that can actually bring this uh, expertise as well into the company. Uh, and for this, you have to have a different type of interview and different assessment of their background, their uh, education, their abilities, and so on. So when it comes to AI stuff and AI roles, do you think so? Do you think that HR like I'm not sure how these companies come up with these roles, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure that there is there is some technical requirement. So, like, an engineering manager will be like, "Okay, I need someone to do this. Can we hire somebody?" Mm-hmm. And then he tells the HR team or whatever, the recruitment team, "Here's the things that I'm looking for. Here's the things that I need." But let's say this. What I I don't know if this is why biz. I don't know if I'm justified in how in this intuition that I'm having, but. If a company doesn't really have a big history of using AI tools and stuff, and if it's just, and if it's just like a software engineering software engineering manager who wants a software engineering person because someone in the business said, mm-hmm. "I want you to build some AI cool AI stuff because it because it's pretty hype right now. We want to do some AI things, right?" And they're like, "Okay, well, do I?" They have sort of like, "Do I need a PhD to do this problem?" Like I've seen so many job postings, right? Mm-hmm. And from reading what they want. To get done, I'm like I can do this, but you need to have a PhD or a master's degree. I'm like, what? 
like even the last company that i worked for they had opening for an internship mm-hmm. for this summer for uh, for uh, for a data science internship right and i knew the thing all the thing i knew the engineering manager right he's like i asked him he's like dude you have a position open since you need a phd like here are the things i have done uh i'm working on these these things next semester working on my thesis and i can, I'm, i'm i'm certain i can do this and he's like yeah for sure like definitely apply and then i, I talked to the talked to the hr person they're like ah oh, no we had some other people who applied who have phd's so i'm like okay yeah fair enough but like what, what do you think what like, like do they uh, are they able to accurately estimate the lev- what you actually need to do some of these problems because like a lot of these companies aren't doing like cutting edge ai things right uh, yeah i I don't know exactly how their HR people are thinking about that and how the managers are thinking about what people they need. I so I I am leading this consortium now um and and we need people and I know what expertise we need because I know what the project is about. We have all the specifications, we have all the needs, we have I I can see all the gaps. And I can say I need a person that will do visual stuff or I, i i need a person that will do 3d modeling right and or somebody that deals with data and, and i know that that's where we need some some help and i can say i need this person and then of course hr will come up with a lot of questions probably and be like okay but what level how many time how many hours per day or what's the ft full time employment scale and i don't know what and then all these things also relate to money how much money do you have to hire somebody um also you want to 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 have um either somebody that you can educate that you can teach how to work within your company or somebody that actually can apply knowledge very quickly in in your company and this i guess play uh, a big role uh, in the hiring process or in deciding what kind of expertise you need um so there have been always cases or often cases where you can hire somebody that on paper is is very good and they are good but it takes them much more time to actually mm. do what what you want them to do just because they don't have the experience or the expertise right um not that, that phd does this like don't get me wrong uh, for all the listeners phd is not the holy grail uh they uh, they have been there are amazing people that have no phd and they yeah, if if you want to like do the a guy, PhD uh the guy who have you heard of comma ai uh no is like um it's like open source computer vision for cars right uh-huh. this guy runs this company um he's this uh uh is like so <laughs> you could download this guy you could download this ai that does pretty much i mean not doesn't do exactly what tesla vision does but like you know it's like you can just get it right mm-hmm and uh, this guy was the guy who who like f- who first broke into P- uh, PlayStation and uh, okay. Xbox and like th- he's like like when you when you hear this guy when you hear, hear him talk you can like you can you can see that in, in his head right like and he doesn't have PhD he didn't need to go like you know so he's like I don't I don't want to do any of this like I'd rather just go build this shit but like that's a I think it's a I can give you an example yeah. on, on that which uh, was a bit shocking and uh Yeah, it's not it's, a, it's not an I, oh, I, I look it up. Yeah, go ahead. Keep keep talking. 
Uh, so we were working on a project again with industry and uh, we were four people in our team. Um, and at some point, one of, of us was uh, a research engineer. He was he didn't have a PhD. And then we had this kind of a delay because somebody didn't deliver what they were supposed to deliver, somebody with a PhD. And then that guy, when we were complaining about his performance, he was like, yeah, but why do you listen to this guy? He doesn't even have a PhD, right? Talking about the other one. Yeah. I was like, dude, honestly, like this person has been doing his job, meeting all the deadlines, turning ideas into code, into working code, or even putting new ideas there. This guy's name is uh, Grego, Grego, George, George Hotz. George Hotz. He's uh, online, he's, always, he's, called, he's known as GeoHot. Hmm. So he was the first guy who uh, initially breached PlayStation, Android, like all these root exploits. Cool. And like he was, he was in, he was arrested and like, the, he's the, you know, like he's like the basically the, uh, the movie, the movie hacker, right? Like, ah, okay. like if you had to make a hacker based on somebody, you'd be this guy. And yeah. like, uh, anyway, sorry, so you were saying. No, so I was saying that it's, it's PhD is not the, the holy grail. Um, you don't become necessarily smarter after you get a PhD. Uh, to be honest, what PhD teaches you uh, is perseverance. That's it. And how to to come up with some ideas and how to implement these ideas. But that, of course, you can get from other um training uh, modules or training training uh, how do you say uh Learning. programs yeah. yeah so yeah if you if you want to be uh, a software engineer then focus on that you don't need to to go and uh, get a computer science degree or to get a phd in computer science um you can just do your work i i had a, a colleague when i was doing my phd in k11 who was in his 30s and he was kind of doing well. And he was like, ah, actually, I don't want to be uh, to, to do this anymore. I want to go and do uh, and work for one of the the, 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 the phone companies in uh, in Belgium. I think it was Telenet or something. It doesn't matter. And, and he became some guy with a big salary, with a high position because he was just good, right? It doesn't matter that he had no PhD. Um, uh, I had also another colleague that after her four years of PhD, she uh, went to work in a, in a bank and because of, of her experience during her PhD, they gave her a nice salary, um, even though she didn't have a PhD, right? So it's not necessary to have the title and so on. So there are different examples. And to be honest, what happened also with me is after, after my PhD, I didn't want to do research at all. Like I, I was like fed up with it so much <laughs> that I was like, no, I'm going to go somewhere and code and do, you know, some some software engineering and that would be it. And then after six months, I was like, well, actually, there is a problem that I, I can approach in this way or there is another problem that I can approach in this way. So my mind started working on these problems, basically, in the way that I was taught during my PhD. So for me, that was good. And then I got, you know, promoted and then moved forward and so on so there are different people different categories different styles different use cases different whatever you know we're all different in some way so it doesn't mean that having a phd will ensure that you get the position and the other way around so if you if there's indeed in, as in your case if there is a position that that tick, that you tick all the boxes for i'd say go for it if yeah the company sure. is is a, a, a 
a good company that um, evaluates the abilities of their candidates and not only the, their CV, then uh, yeah, that's my that's yeah. my experience as well. Like I think if it, if you uh, definitely don't limit yourself if it just says I need you need masters to apply or whatever. Sometimes it's the case if they're like a big like for example I spoke to uh, ING they were like no we can't make an exception. And I was like okay whatever they're, they're like they're, I didn't expect much because like yeah. they're like a, this bank the banks tend to be yeah very sort of you know but also you can imagine that a company like ING it's not just one branch in Tilburg mm-hmm. or in Eindhoven right it's like a, like a pyramid of a lot of things that are connected together like you have this hierarchy and then of course they cannot make an exception on a lower level because this has to be propagated upwards. Um, that's the same thing with big companies like Google, like Amazon, like whatever, you know. Uh, and because so many people apply, it's just a nice filter. Exactly. Like, just, yeah. like, just like, just get, get rid of That's it. why you have, I think for Google, you have like the, the what is it, like five, six hundred page book for the cracking the, co- the, the coding interview, right? And you have to read it if you want to apply and to, to get accepted. Um, they have so a book? There is a book. Like yes. they made it? Or like I'm someone not else sure who... No, I'm not sure. You have to check. I, I don't know. Uh, but there is a cracking the code in interview, it's called. Um, and I think it yeah. was for, for Google. I haven't read it. Cracking the coding interview. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there are different uh, situations in which you don't need to have a, a certain degree to actually be able to do your job. Um, so, I also wanted to ask you, like... Um, so you're exp- you, uh, in, in, in machine translation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that, that that was a solved problem. Apparently, it's not. <laughs> uh, well, yes and no, right? You, you have the transformers now and you have MBART and, and XLMR and uh, GPT-3 and probably 4 as well. And I don't know. And they do quite an amazing job in translating from one language to another. Um, but there are cases where they don't do a good job. Specific domains, specialized domains, legal domains, um, literature, they, they don't, don't do a good job unless they are actually fine-tuned or updated towards this domain. Uh, not to mention that, for example, if you want to, to take some of these models and use it, in your own premises because you're a company that wants to protect your data uh, then it takes kind of a lot of resources so if you want to actually use your data to train a model you need to provision for these resources right and machine translation will not be also a soft problem until we have language evolution and that happens every day we train models on past data and when they are finished they're already old because uh, language evolves every day. So there are many use cases and, and, and situations where machine translation would work um, and there are others that it would not. And we still need to do research on that. I think that nowadays what, has hap- what is happening is that a lot of big companies like Google, Microsoft, they're investing a lot of time and efforts and resources in these huge models because they have the, the money. Uh, and the hardware and the the authority to do that. We as, as a research group here, um, we don't. We are not going to 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 create the next GPT model. Um, 
but we work on other topics that are also of importance and, and interest, like quality estimation, quality evaluation, automatic post setting, training, uh, or beating Google in uh, the neutral writer mm. that was developed. Uh, Things like uh, Google is sort of, I mean, translate at least. It's good enough to get get by, right? Like if you were like, oh yeah, of course, for sure. Like if you're just like trying to figure, if if uh, I don't know, Tilburg, the municipality sends me a, sends me a PDF, I'm fairly confident in what Google tells me what's what's gonna be in there, yeah. you know. But like if I had to translate a poem that someone wrote me in Dutch, I'd be like, nah, probably not. Yeah, and actually, it's very interesting with poems that you can take different human translators. And they will translate a, a poem in very different ways. Oh, right. Each of which will be very interesting. Um, and of course, you, you you can give it to Google or to DeepL or to other algorithm and you get also another version. It may also be interesting. It may be... That's interesting. Correct. Or who knows? Like, uh, yeah. I was I, I read uh, Dante's, in, Dante's Inferno. Uh-huh. Obviously translated, right? It's not, in, not, not, written in, not written in English. So you you wonder like what you lose when you uh, sort of do this. All mm-hmm. right, well, it's been almost an hour and a half. But I want to ask you the last thing. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say something about I want to ask you about the sign on project. Like to what what's the what's that about? What what what, what are you trying to accomplish? Um yeah, the sign on project, well, it's a, it's uh it's a, it's a very big project um involving 17 partners. Partners meaning Partners, meaning institutes and oh, uh, right. companies and okay, gotcha. universities um, with around 60 people. We are now around 60 people, I think. And so the idea there, the tip of the iceberg, let's say, is uh, to develop an application for translation between sign and spoken language and vice versa. And also sign and sign and spoken and spoken language. But um, beneath what we're doing is quite a, a lot of work on the software uh, on the sign language recognition, on the uh, synthesis, on the translation um, of, of this. Um, we are developing also a very nice infrastructure, like uh, the framework, the sign framework, which takes all these pieces together and, and puts them in, in you know one unified space, which is accessible by the, um, the application. Um, and along with that, actually, what we do is something that other projects don't do or haven't done, and it's talking to the user. And that actually creates a lot of time. Uh, well, it, it takes a lot of time, basically. Because we try to to ask potential users, deaf and hard of hearing people and hearing people as well, what do they need, what they want, how they envisage this uh, system, uh, what are their requirements or what are their acceptance uh, criteria and then we uh, kind of integrate these things into the apl- uh, application or into the framework and so into the research this is a eu funded thing yeah um why 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 isn't like a business tech try to tackle this i feel like they might have right um or is it not that it's just not a big there, there is there, there have been companies that would uh, address this there are different companies like for example if you if you google cmax there is a company that generates an avatar for uh, commercial purposes uh, and basically, they do avatars for specific, you know, translations. Um, there are uh, like Microsoft has tried to do that in 2012. I think there was a project. Huawei did did uh, some uh, sign language translation, um, and there are other companies as well um, that do this 
type of, uh, of work in a professional setting. But what we have noticed so far is that there hasn't been a very uh, robust research uh, behind the scenes. Oh, I see. Okay. And for example, you may have heard of, hey, we solved sign language with uh, a glove. Yeah, uh, I saw that. Yeah. Sort of. Some you, bunch you of kids, bunch of kids did it in somewhere in the US, I think. Yeah. And you can ask any deaf person how do they feel about wearing a glove to talk to a, a hearing person. And yeah, the responses will not be very nice, right? What if somebody tells you now you have to wear this device around your neck that will translate your speech to, to you know, some other language? You probably not feel comfortable just because it's not part of you. Um, it lose, you lose your identity if you have to actually um, be different in that way. Put a glove and do this and that. And so on. So, it's a very it's a very um, difficult project because we have to adhere to a lot of things: uh, ethical, privacy. I mean, all the 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 sign language is is done by hands, body, and face, which you cannot just anonymize, right? Um, it's not written. There is no written form uh, there. Not the officially accepted. Form. Then generation, you have so many aspects of, of sign language that are very difficult to encode or to to recognize and thus and synthesize. Um, so it's a very difficult project. And if we have three more years, probably we'll still be somewhere uh, three years or five years until we, we, we can actually develop an application. It, it's always like this with AI, I guess. But uh, for sign language, it's difficult. We are putting a lot of efforts in the research. There are a lot of uh, um, other colleagues that are also working nowadays on uh, sign language translation, synthesis, and recognition. So I think that we're boosting the NLP in this direction. Um, so I'm kind of happy about this, uh, regardless of how the what will be the end deliverable of the sign-on. Um, are you guys going to be open sourcing any of the... Yes, huh? everything will be open source, oh, nice. um, except for... The data, data yes. that is proprietary. Um, even data that we have collected and we have processed, it will be also open sourced. As long as, of course, you know, people that download it meet the, the license requirements. Nice. Yeah. Right. Hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes. Uh, wow. Anyway, it's been yeah. good. Thank it's you uh, so much for your time, though. Like, it's been cool. Like, this is a really nice, welcome. Bit, really interesting conversation because, like, I've wanted to talk to, some, like, talk to someone like this about just like the little boundary that we have and it's nice because you already well, we worked in industry and now you also have these industry relationships yeah which is awesome alright thanks uh, thanks a lot for inviting me no for sure thanks again and uh, I'll see you see you this has been a One Deeper Podcast thanks for joining and I hope you learned something catch you again next time